This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. She's the first African-American woman to lead the Library of Congress. Her name, Dr. Carla Hayden, our special guest this week from Baltimore on The Takeout. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? Well, one, relentlessly curious, two, steadfastly non-ideological. All voices and points of view welcome here at The Takeout table. Not in Washington this week. We're happy, delighted to be in Baltimore for a couple of reasons. Our special guest lives in Baltimore. We'll get to her in just a second, but most importantly, we want to celebrate this show's arrival on WBAL here in Baltimore. I want to give a shout out to one of my longtime radio friends, Brian Neiman. Everyone at WBAL, thank you for taking the takeout for you in Baltimore. We welcome you to the show. Please enjoy it every week that you can hear it. 1 p.m. Sundays during Raven season. It will go to Fridays. We'll tell you the time when we know that for sure. But just great to be here in Baltimore and be with the Baltimorean, Carla Hayden. Now, who is Carla Hayden? She is the Librarian of Congress, the 14th Librarian of Congress in the entire history of our great country. Of the 14 Librarian of Congresses, Librarian of Congress, rather, only three have had expertise in library sciences. Carla is one of those. She has a PhD, if I understand correctly, in library science. Carla, it's great to have you with us. This is wonderful, and it's really fun because WBL has been a station that I've been associated with. Have uh, you? My entire career here. And your career here in Baltimore. Tell my audience a little bit about your career here with the library system in Baltimore. The library system in Baltimore is actually the first public library system in the United States. It was started by Mr. Enoch Pratt. He was a Yankee from Middleborough, Massachusetts. He came down around the Civil War to make his fortune in Baltimore. And Andrew Carnegie came to Baltimore to find out how Mr. Pratt was able to establish a public library before Andrew Carnegie started his wonderful program of public libraries throughout the country. Right. And in his Gospel of Wealth, Andrew Carnegie has a whole paragraph about coming to Baltimore, meeting with Mr. Pratt, and said he was my pioneer. Is that why Baltimore calls itself the city that reads? It is. Part of that has to do with the fact that literacy and the power of books and reading has been an important part of this city's growth. And I tell you, when I was um, director of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, I came from Chicago to head up this library system that was legendary. In library libraries. Oh, everybody knew because it was the first library to have services for teenagers. There was a book called The Fair Garden and the Swarm of Beasts. The garden is the library, and the swarm of beasts are teenagers. <laughs> I can relate to that, probably. So there, you know, this father is where, of three. yes, I yes, can. you can understand, <laughs> but that, that that you let teenagers read mm-hmm. uh, what they like, and you're not being prescriptive. So that was the I knew about that, as well as the outreach to the community. So the Annie Pratt Free Library is is legendary. So I want to play for you a soundbite that I know you'll recognize because it's your own voice. You were on CBS this morning, a fine morning news program, September 19th, 2016, because I want to talk about this idea of transitioning as you did from the Baltimore Library System to Librarian of Congress, such a big job. 
Sarah, that's number four, please. I had been in public service in a public library in Baltimore uh, doing so many things directly with people. And I had to think, how can I translate from going to a community, serving a community to the country? So that was uh, four years ago, roughly, three and a half. What have you learned in that time and how, how difficult or fun has it been to make that transition from serving a community face-to-face to serving a country? I did wonder what I could do to let more people know throughout the country about the Library of Congress. It's the world's largest library. It has treasures untold. You can think of any subject, any format, from Jerry Lewis's home movies to baseball cards to the largest comic book collection to Bibles, all these wonderful things. Papers of 23 presidents, Mm -hmm. Clara Barton's diaries, all of these things. So how could I let people know that it's their library and make... It's not something distant and untouchable. And it's not just for quote-unquote scholars. Mm -hmm. It's for people who are curious, people who want to create or learn. And so... And immerse themselves in the story of America. The story of America and also creativity. To have, for instance, the papers and the actual manuscripts, the writings of George Gershwin. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a revival now of uh, Porgy and Bess. We have his original manuscripts with his corrections to Summertime, Mm -hmm. to have Rodgers and Hammerstein, to have Jonathan Larson, the creator of Rent. Yes. And then when you have the Grammys and you had the Parkland young people singing the Seasons of Love, we were able to put up on social media his handwritten calculation, 507, on no paper. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I thought about the country is made up of communities, that's when I was able to really think about it. And so I've been to 22 states in the last three and a half years, all over. And what I'm finding is people want that connection to something that is national and that can complement their local libraries. Right. And I want to go through a couple of statistics because it's almost hard to imagine what it is that you are the librarian of. 167 million items, 24.3 million cataloged books, 3.6 million audio materials, including disc tapes, talking books, other recorded formats, 5.5 million maps. 8.1 8.1 million items of sheet music. So much more. 100,000 posters. 14.8 million photographs. All of this is this massive repository. And hair. Hair, yes. H-A-I-R. We have one of the three. I know, I'm, I'm, you, you, people say, what? What? Yes, we have hair. We have Beethoven's hair. You know, next year is the 250th. The Beethoven's hair. Beethoven, Not the dog. One of three. <laughs> we might have that, too. We won't even get into our veterinary collection. Um, but that, and, and four locks of Thomas Jefferson's hair. Mm-hmm. And a vial from Sigmund Freud. We have the Sigmund Freud papers that people look at that vial. Right. All of these wonderful things. And so... And I have to also say that we're now up to 171 million items. Ah, Okay. And it covers 826 miles of shelving. So think about from Washington, D.C. to Davenport, Iowa. Mm -hmm. That's the amount of shelving. And if I understand correctly, one of the reasons that number went from 167 to 171 million, not just in the course of this conversation, but you enter in about 12,000 new items per day, roughly? 12 to 15, depending on the item. And that includes uh, maybe video games, all types of items that come in through the United States copyright system. The Library of Congress since 1870 has been the administrator of the U.S. copyright system. So that also provides materials. So Can you imagine that job of a librarian looking through all those things? And I came across in some of the research uh, a great phrase that maybe you have or others have in the library sciences world, which is librarians are the original search engines. Yes, we have bags and mugs with that printed on it. <laughs> 
which I love that. And I will say this. Our show celebrates because in the last segment of it, we talk about everyone's uh, influential book, favorite movie, and favorite music. So all of those things are part and parcel of the Library of Congress. But one thing I will, uh, again, share with the, the listeners and viewers so I've written four books, and the first book I wrote uh, was one of the greatest ambitions of my life, to write just one book. And when it arrived, the most important moment for me upon its arrival was opening it and looking to see that it had a Library of Congress number. And with each subsequent book I've written, that moment of discovery is unlike anything else. And probably you were also surprised to see the subject headings, mm-hmm. how people were going to find your book, what was the... Uh, subject that they would categorize it under. In the library world, we we jokingly say that catalogers are the most powerful people, and especially during the age of the card catalog, because they could discover or they could hide your book if they wanted to <laughs> by that number <laughs> or by how they <laughs> catalog something. That's the voice of Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Back for segment two, of the takeout in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. So excited was I about being in Baltimore. I forgot to mention where we are, Village Square Cafe, which is a really important hangout in Baltimore. Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress, is going to tell us why. Why is this an important hangout in Baltimore? The Village Square Cafe takes the tradition that started about 30 or 40 years ago in a planned community. It was designed by Jim Rouse, who designed Finneal Hall in Boston, the village of Columbia, Maryland. And he actually started this as an experiment. And so you have shopping, you have different types of housing, and it is so well located in the city of Baltimore mm-hmm. that it became the place that governors and mayors and senators reps and, and senators members of and Congress librarians also, of Congress <laughs> yeah well I found out about it uh, <laughs> as soon as I moved to Baltimore I was moving into this area and I said oh I'm going to go to this uh, cafe and just have breakfast and you know when you're moving you right. just put on anything and I put it on my cap and I'm grungy and I go in for breakfast and there's the mayor and there's the head of the local nonprofit that I'm supposed to meet with about funding and there's this and that I thought oh, oh yep. this is not this is your regular cafe yeah and better so doll up next time yeah but it has become this kind of safe place and you can see people are there are all types of people here but it also is a family run cafe sure and it has Book, book area exactly. and people sit and it's just cozy and you get your pancakes Very, and you do business. Which you're going to be having in a moment, these pancakes. Yes, legendary. Yeah. I'll be having the omelet, but uh, we look forward to the legendary pancakes. Village Square Cafe, thanks so much for having us here in Baltimore. This is Black History Month. I want uh, your assessment of that. Uh, I think every month in America is Black History Month. Every uh, month in America is Native American History Month, uh, Caucasian uh, History Month. It's all, it, it's all history. history. We make history right. in this country every single day. Um, but you are noteworthy uh, in the annals of American history as the first woman and the first African American uh, librarian of Congress. Does that mean something to you, or do you think of that as something that is less important than maybe is attached to it? Both of those mean quite a bit to me, personally and professionally. Professionally, as the first woman since... 1802, 
Uh, I'm the 14th, and it's really interesting when you see the names engraved in marble at the uh, Thomas Jefferson Building. You see Daniel and John and Archibald, and then you see Carla. Yeah. It's like one of these is not like the other <laughs> because librarianship is what uh, is one of the four feminized professions, nursing, social work, education, and librarianship, where about 85 to 90% of the workforce is female. However, the top management doesn't always reflect that. Mm-hmm. So in the profession, I must say that uh, my library peeps, as I call right. <laughs> my colleagues, I mean, there was a lot of joy in Mudville uh, when I was uh, nominated and confirmed. And personally, being a person of color, it means so much because people that looked like me were forbidden by law to learn to read. Frederick Douglass talks about that. Once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. And so that means so much that here is a person of color leading the world's largest library. I want to play a soundbite that I know you'll recognize because it's from when you were sworn in, September 14th, 2016. That's number three, Sarah, if you play that now. People of my race were once punished with lashes and worse for learning to read. And as a descendant of people who were denied the right to read, to now have the opportunity to serve and lead the institution that is the national symbol of knowledge is a historic moment. It's big. It was big, and it was interesting because I was being sworn in with Abraham Lincoln's Bible. It's only been it's in the possession of the Library of Congress. Also, the contents of his pocket the night he was assassinated. And that had special significance because my family's from central Illinois, uh, Champaign, Illinois, and Springfield, Illinois. And to hold that. Ah, breakfast is here. Pancakes. (laughs) There are those pancakes. And it was something. Oh, oh, this is really. Now you see why everybody comes. Now I do. It's not just the location, it's the food, too. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's the food, too. And, um, but I have to tell a little story on my mom, uh, who I was so pleased could hold that Bible while I was being sworn in. But as I was preparing to give that talk that you played a clip of, Mm I, as a great librarian, said, I'm going to list every law, historically, that denied people of color to read and also the punishments of people who taught people to read. So there was amputation, there was all this stuff. And I'm practicing with my mom, and I'm going through this. It's about two or three pages, every state. And she's listening patiently. And as a good mom would do, and then at the end of it, she said, Carla, that could be a little bit of a downer. (laughs) You're swearing in. Could we condense it to what you heard on there? Good advice, but I want to make sure we don't gloss over this, because it wasn't just a custom or a folkway. These were laws. These were actual laws on the books that said, if a slave is caught learning to read, you can, and they would list the number of uh, lashes that they were to receive. For reading. For, for learning, learning to, to read. read. And, and if you taught pe- someone who right. was a slave, you, if, you could also be punished. Yes, you could. And Frederick Douglass has a wonderful part in his autobiography uh, that talks about being taught to read by a slave owner's wife who saw he was a bright kid and she was teaching him to read and her husband came in one time and saw her doing that and he said don't do that and that's when Frederick Douglass knew reading must be important that and there's a book by Alberto Manguel the history of reading and it has a chapter called forbidden reading Mm -hmm. and it talks about the fact that as I could almost quote it As centuries of dictators, slave owners, and other illicit holders of power have always known, an illiterate crowd is the easiest to rule. Mm -hmm. If you cannot prevent people from learning to read, the next best recourse is to limit its scope. And it goes on to talk about book burning and all these efforts to keep knowledge and information from people. We'll get to book burning in a minute because the British did quite a bit of that to the original Library of Congress. started with books from the 
library collection. Exactly. But I want to talk about also something, because you made a reference to it in the first segment, categorization of books. And I want to play a soundbite also from your swearing in. This is the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Jefferson, as you know, was a very, very unique man. Other people arranged their books alphabetically or by size. He divided his library into three sections that corresponded with the three main faculties of the mind, memory, reason, and imagination. And when you stop to think about it, those are the very same qualities that define Dr. Hayden. That's a very high compliment. Wasn't it? And it was very humbling to be there and listening to people talk about the impact and what they hoped I would do. Mm -hmm. Also, the Thomas Jefferson Library was the foundation, really, of the modern Library of Congress. You mentioned the fire. Yes. So during the War of 1812, uh, the British did a lot of things in Washington, and one of the things was burn a substantial, if not nearly total, amount of books that were in the Senate part of the Capitol uh, and contained the original or much of the original foundation of the Library of Congress. Yes, it started with about 600 law books because the Library of Congress was, and still is, the reference arm for Congress. We provide nonpartisan information and reports to Congress, so that's that's how we started. And the British, when they uh, were trying to start the fire in the Capitol, used the books that they saw. And I actually, there's one fireplace in the Capitol still where you can see some of the soot <laughs> from that and they use those books and Thomas Jefferson in about 1814 had the largest personal library in the United States 6,000 volumes and we're going to find out what he did with it on the other side of this break I'm Major Garrett we're at Village Square Cafe in the great city of Baltimore with Carla Hayden 14th Librarian of Congress stay tuned back in a minute CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Village Square Cafe here in Baltimore is our special host. We're so delighted to be here. Breakfast has arrived. Outstanding uh, as advertised. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, is our very special guest. She doesn't know this, uh, but I've been trying to book her on the show for almost three years. Um, and I'm so glad we're finally able to accomplish it because this conversation is about all things worth celebrating in America. Literature, knowledge, facts, music, film, and its preservation and its accessibility is part of the ongoing American story. And you really sit atop of that important pyramid. So I'm so happy to be with you and have a chance to talk to you. Uh, I want to play for you a soundbite from an interview you gave to Time Magazine, October 27th, 2017, because there's a beautiful metaphor in here about the importance of books to children. With children, it's so important that they see themselves, but then they're exposed to the world. So we like to say books can be mirrors and windows. And a book was for you at an early age, was it not? When I was about seven, and we were living in Jamaica, Queens, and I was uh, going to PS 96, and right across the street was a typical uh, storefront branch library. And I would go there every day, because reading was really something I loved to do. Uh, when I learned how to read myself, I was just excited, so that was something. And I can't remember what librarian put this book in my hand but that was it it was a book the name of it is bright april it was about an eight-year-old girl about my age she was brown like me and she was a brownie and i was a brownie okay and she the the illustrations were beautiful they had a home that had a piano in it just like mine i just could see myself as bright april and i as someone that at an early age loved books so much to see myself in a was book was that the first time you remember seeing yourself in a different context that was the first time it's one thing to love books and read about different places and different people and different times and to know that reading and books are so important mm-hmm so this is my family that was, uh, you know, books were everywhere, and, and I was very fortunate with that. But when you have something that you know is so important, and you don't see yourself reflected, mm-hmm. that's almost an unconscious thing. It's like, well, wow, is there any 
story about somebody right. like me? Is there a place for me? Is there a place for me in these books? And this goes to uh, one of the dual experiences I think reading can be associated with. One is escapism, but also yes. one is getting closer to yourself. Yes, and, and having empathy or understanding. And so many uh, of the authors now for young people are really mirroring young people's experiences whether they have reading differences. One of the most popular authors of all time is Mr. Dave Pelkey. And his book is called, his series, Captain Underpants. Now let us not be (laughs) judgmental. Mm -mm. The reason why it is. Very popular. One of the main characters has dyslexia. Right. And that, and it's a graphic novel. And so young people who have reading differences or reading difficulties have gravitated toward his series. And he will sign books for four hours for young people. That leads me to my next question, supplied by my dear friend and producer of this show, Arden Fari, because his next-door neighbor is a children's librarian. And they wanted me to ask you this question. Given your background as a children's librarian, what do you think of a graphic novel winning the Newbery Medal for the first time ever? We love it. Uh, the Newbery Medal is a top award for children's literature. New Kid by Jerry Craft won the award in 2020. What do you think of that? That is wonderful. It relates to the fact that, and I was, a, as a children's librarian, I started out as a children's librarian, I still am at heart, and I was on Newbery Award committees, picking and selecting those books to get the awards. And they're like the Oscars for children's literature. You get the gold seal, it's in perpetuity, and it's a recommended book. To have the recognition that young people read in different ways and have a graphic novel selected is groundbreaking and I think will help in terms of required reading lists. The Newberry is always a required right. reading. You read everything on that. And to have that option for mm-hmm. young people, and that recognition. I think, will open doors for so many. So we talked about this at the beginning, and I think it's really important as we think about the future of the Library of Congress. There's an effort uh, that's been going on for nearly 20 years, as I understand it, to digitize that which is in the Library of Congress. That has to be a uh, technologically complex process. How far along are you, and what does that actually mean in terms of accessibility to this trove? And I think what when people hear that, that we're digitizing things in the Library of Congress, they think that we might be digitizing some of the books, but we're actually doing more with digitizing the unique items that the Library of Congress has. For instance, the papers of 23 presidents. So we just digitized the papers and personal letters of Woodrow Wilson in time for the centennial of uh, World War One. We put up the diaries of Teddy Roosevelt. These are things that other institutions and libraries don't have, right. and that's the priority for us. So we're, we're we just put up the Rosa Parks papers because we have a major exhibit in her own words. Right. And Clara Barton, uh, Red Cross. Yes. She had depression. So things that are unique, unique. to the library. That's of our priority. And can be found nowhere else. That's right. And, and therefore their accessibility opens this whole new yes, world. Yes, it does. And those catalogers that we talk about uh, that assign numbers are also working on making sure that when things are put online, the search terms are there. So that someone putting in depression, famous people might pull up Clara Barton. Right. And see what she said about not being able to go on. So that's where we are really putting our emphasis. What do we have that other people don't have? And someone listening says, okay, Carla, I'd like to find out something about Rosa Parks that's been digitized. What do I do? You just go on our website, loclibrarycongress.gov. Okay. And you pull it up. And we have, and we've been working really hard on our digital identity and presence in our website to make it easier to navigate, to make it something that we will have highlights, for instance. So right now, if you go on our website, the first thing you'll see pretty much is Rosa Parks. Okay. And so we're tying in, we have a wonderful women's suffrage exhibit because we have the papers of Susan B. Anthony. (laughs) Right. I mean, I have to smile and laugh because... Being a librarian and being with the Library of Congress, there's just about, there is no 
subject that That's we don't there. have something right. about. Right. It's it's just and not just troll. something. The something it in might many cases. Be something I mentioned. The, the thing content, that you most want. Or the thing that you didn't know about. Carl Sagan, for instance, uh, the Library of Congress has his papers. At 12 years old, he drew on note paper, and we're, we're thinking about an exhibit of all of these handwritten types of things for different people, what a space traveler would look like right. at 12. Right. And so think about a 12-year-old. Yeah, Carl Sagan's doodles, uh, right. kind of big. And to then engage young people with that. There's also something I read about in terms of crowdsourcing, asking people to help out yes. on a particularly arduous task. And one of the things I came across that fascinated me was crowdsourcing the letters written in hand, by hand rather, to Abraham Lincoln, some yes. 28,000 letters, and asking people to help the Library of Congress essentially translate or transcribe them. And it's a model that was really started with the National Archives. My colleague, the archivist of the United States, David Ferriero, give him a shout out. Um, and, and our program is called By the People. And we started with 27,000 letters to Abraham Lincoln that really hadn't been read or seen by anyone except few researchers and that and, and now we put them up the country right and we're the asking them about right, things on their all mind. types of things and we're saying that people made history like Abraham Lincoln Clara Barton and you will help keep them alive and so we launched the program and it's been really wonderful because we have retired teachers we have young people one of the interesting things though is that with these handwritten cursive letters right. yes some people and especially young people have difficulty reading cursive writing because they're not taught cursive they're writing they're not ta- taught cursive which so is a whole that's other been subject about what's happening to education in America but we'll set that aside yeah. I'm Major Garrett we're at the Village Square Cafe in the fabulous city of Baltimore with Carla Hayden the 14th Librarian of Congress back for segment 4 in just a second from CBS News this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to our show, a celebration of literature, books, maps, movies, sheet music, the trove of American creativity and global creativity, all housed at the Library of Congress. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, a resident of Baltimore. We're here in Baltimore at the Village Square Cafe. I want to let everyone know, uh, in celebration of WBAL taking on this show, more than 60 radio stations have done so. We hope to continue to expand that, but we just want to celebrate that, and I want everyone here in Baltimore to know we have some other guests of famous Baltimore renown who will be on the show in the next couple of months. I want you to know that. No details yet, but I'm telling you, you'll be happy when you hear their voices. Um, Carla, uh, about the future of the Library of Congress, one thing I came across in my reading, about two million visitors pass through the Library of Congress each year, so it's a, it's a destination spot when people come as tourists to our nation's capital. And what's very interesting is about 60% of those people are coming from the Capitol Visitor Center. There's a tunnel from the Visitor Center directly to the Library of Congress. Right. And we have people from all over the world coming in. And what we're working on now is giving them an opportunity to understand what the library is about, how it relates to them, and to get them engaged. It's one of the most beautiful, the Thomas Jefferson Building. One of the most beautiful buildings in all of Washington. And I would say it's uh, top ten in America. It really is. It was designed to resemble an Italian palace and the beauty that a palace would have, but to show that in this country we build palaces to knowledge and not royalty. How difficult is it to obtain a Library of Congress card? That's another thing we want people to know. You can be 16 and get a reader's card. Mm -hmm. And what that reader's card will allow you to do is to visit one of the 19 reading rooms that the library has. There are really three buildings. Yes on Capitol Hill, the Thomas Jefferson, then the John Adams building, and the Madison building. It formed a complex, physical complex on Capitol Hill. And you can look at materials, and you can be in those reading rooms. You can study, or you're on, it's been called one of the best places to study. And you can request a book and it'll be brought to you. You can request a book, you can test some materials. It comes on a conveyor belt, I've used it, it's amazing. It's it's a wonderful place to study. And now you go into a reading rooms and you'll see people with headphones, 
with their own laptops and things, doing just soaking up the atmosphere. We want to encourage people to do that too. So um, it was a uh, joke line in uh, the original Ghostbusters: uh, "Print is dead." It's been something that's been said over and over. As people familiar with the show know, I started my career in newspapering. I was in newspapers and magazines for 17 years before I got into television. Heard back then, print was dead, print was dying. Uh, it is the uh, most predicted, least achieved uh, occurrence yes. in human history, the death of print. And think about what we just talked about, the graphic novel that has won the Oscar for children's literature. The part of publishing that is doing the best right now is children's literature and young adult literature. The graphic novels are flying off the shelves. You'll see, think about Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Three and four hundred pages with no illustrations and young people were lining up for the next edition. I will tell you a quick story about that because it speaks to exactly your point, uh, which would have been unpredictable before the arrival of the Harry Potter series. So each and every one of those books I read aloud to my children. Very 1940s-style America. Uh, Dad in the chair and the kids laying on the floor listening to a book being read out loud. Those are long books. That was a lot of work, but it was a thoroughly enjoyable experience for all of us. And again, in that digital era, not what you would have predicted. That's right, and people are seeking and want the human connection. It's very interesting to see the fact that, and think about that we are doing a podcast Mm -hmm. and people are listening. The power of story, the power of connecting to a human is still uh, something that humans are amenable to. Mm -hmm. They like it and you can really see it coming back. I was uh, when one of those Harry Potter books arrived by special delivery. I was on a run in the neighborhood, and the kids called me on my cell phone and said, "Wherever you are, you run home right now and start reading." And I would encourage I did. any adult <laughs> that hasn't read a Harry Potter book to do one thing: pick up the first one mm-hmm. and start reading. And by page two or three. You'll say, I get it. Yep. It's a good story. It's a great story. And Jason Reynolds is the new uh, youth ambassador for the Library of Congress. And he talks about the fact that he's a best-selling young adult author. He talks about the fact that there's something called, uh, and especially generational book guilt, uh, that you, you, you're taught that if you start a book, you have to finish it. Yes. Like broccoli or Brussels sprouts, <laughs> one of my things. And so even though you don't like the book, mm-hmm. so that makes reading a chore. When there are thousands and thousands of books, why don't you just put that one down right. and try to find another one? Leads me to this question. Do you have several books going at, t- at one time? All the time. And I've learned how I to do. decorate with books. They're aspirational books, usually, that have to do with exercise and living well over there. They're books that I need to read. They're mystery books that I want to read. And there was a time that I wondered about, wow, you have so many books in the house. What would people think? And I thought, no, you're living in a a garden. Think of it like that. So uh, if you are a person of a certain age, you're familiar with a movie called All the President's Men. And certainly if you're in my field, journalism, you're deeply familiar with that movie. And there's an iconic scene in that movie that has very little to do with the underlying story. But it's a beautiful scene of Woodward and Bernstein, the two Washington Post reporters. They're trying to find out a piece of information. And they go to the Library of Congress and they start flipping through pieces of paper to see if there's a book that was checked out at the White House that might be relevant to a future story. And they're in the reading room. It's a close-up shot of them, and then the camera pans up, 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 and revealed dramatically, silently, but beautifully are the concentric circles of tables in the reading room. It's a beautiful part of the Library of Congress, and I think the place people most want to see when they walk in the first time. Is that right? And when you think about National Treasure, the other movie, and the Book of Secrets, we're always asked, where is the Book of Secrets? Uh, We're making sure now that more people can actually have that experience of viewing that great, wonderful reading room and getting that sense of wonder, because that's what it was all about, that you sit in that reading room and you get a sense of what's possible 
what's been before, and maybe you get inspired. Since you mentioned National Treasure, I want to ask you a question I was once asked. Uh, National Treasure, the movie, documentary or mostly documentary? Ah, see, we got to keep that. And we want to encourage and use popular culture right. to have people to come to the library. That's it's not either, ladies and gentlemen. It's not. <laughs> it's a it's great not. movie, though. It's a great movie. The other movie that speaks to librarians uh, is It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. And what's at the very end of that movie? If Jimmy Stewart hadn't uh, been alive and everything, what's the fate worse than death for his wife? She comes out of a library and she's a spinster. Unmarried librarian. Unmarried. Oh, boy, what a horror. <laughs> so <laughs> that speaks to the stereotype that librarians have. The stereotypes we'd like to shatter on this show, and we like to have guests who live and breathe that shattering. Carla Hayden, you are certainly one of them. It's been a delight. Oh, we have one more you. segment. Please stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, on our radio audience. Thank you for tuning in this week for our podcast and CBSN audience. God love you. We invite you to stick around. There's more takeout right after this short break. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. We're at Village Square Cafe in the great city of Baltimore. Why are we in Baltimore? Well, to celebrate two things. One, our special guest, Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, Baltimore resident, but also this show appearing on WBAL in the great city of Baltimore. We're very excited about that. More than 60 radio stations on the Takeout Podcast Radio Network. Not too many podcasts have a radio network. We do. And that's one of the amazing things about this program. Thanks to everyone across the United States who listens to the show on great radio stations, now including WBL in its ranks. Carla Hayden, this portion of our program we like to call the fun and games because it's dedicated to three questions we've asked every single guest on the show. This is our 162nd episode, and everyone has dealt with these questions, and they are as follows. And I w- I'm delighted to hear your answers on these. Most influential book in your life. We may have already discussed it, but there may have been another one. Uh, All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Wow. Well, mm. we did talk a little bit about my favorite book that... Certainly uh, the most influential book as a child. It was the most influential as a child. And when I think about books in my life... There have been different books that have meant something to me at different times in my life. And it's interesting. You have a reading history. Mm -hmm. And there was a time that I loved romance novels. Really? And old English and cozy villages and all of that. And I I said to myself, there was that period that I wanted to almost escape. And then I went into mysteries. Because, and one of my favorite mystery writers is Laura Lippman mm-hmm. uh, from Baltimore. I wanted something to be a problem and then it gets solved. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mysteries. And now I'm really uh, reading more uh, biographies of people and trying to see what has made someone tick what they've been through Mm -hmm. in that so it's interesting I have to say though talked about a good story one was Gone with the Wind Mm -hmm. I love that book and Little Women was another one at a different time so I've had different ones so let me ask you just a little bit about Gone with the Wind there are those who look back on it now both the book and the movie and say it doesn't hold up well that it is uh, either insensitive or overlooks or airbrushes, if you will, the deeper realities of slavery, the Confederacy, etc. And that's very common when you look at books that were written at certain periods of time and with different authors. And what attracted me to uh, the book at the time I was reading it as a younger uh, person was the story. Mm-hmm. And that has been something that has, I think, held up the story itself. But then you look with new eyes and uh, new perceptions about how things were depicted. That makes it even more important to have people from diverse backgrounds writing and encourage them to write. And you also know at the same time Richard Wright was writing things, Mm -hmm. Langston Hughes, 
and make sure that people had that exposure right. and to other authors who were writing at the same time. And as a librarian of Congress, I su- suspect you would say, don't discount that as a literary achievement. Put it in a different and more modern context, context, but don't get rid of it. Don't purge it from the system. If, if right, because will. that's part of the history, and you can use it as a jumping-off point and a, a discussion about who was Margaret Mitchell, mm-hmm. what made her write in that way, and then what other things were being written at the same time, and what is disturbing about it. And right. so instead of erasing history, discuss it, talk about it. Why is it difficult? Why does this bother you now? Right. And the same thing could be said about the movie, and uh, that appraisal of the movie is completely justified, but as a cinematic achievement, Gone with the Wind must be recognized as one of the all-time greats. And my great Because things great were done in that movie and shot in that movie that had never been shot before. Patty McDaniel is the first time uh, African-American won an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And my great-great-aunt, Ruby Goodwin Berkeley, was Hattie McDaniel's uh, personal assistant and really? a playwright herself and an actress. And you have to think about Dreams Deferred, that that role in Hollywood at that time was the only one that she could get. Right. And what that no meant. No other Step kind of character was that, up Right. Uh, so unavailable. let's talk about that. Let's talk about and that. And then right. talk about the African-American movie makers and directors uh, now, now right. and what they're doing and how and important it is and the to stories have people telling. of a certain uh, group be able to create music, literature, from their own experience. Right. Now, we mentioned Gone with the Wind as a movie. Uh, do you have another movie or as a movie that you think of that is a favorite or one of your all-time favorites? And one of the ways I describe this sometimes is you're at home and you're flipping through and you see it and you stop, no matter where it is in the movie. Well, okay. Now we're really, we're, 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 <laughs> we're uh, the devil wears product. There you go. I have to say... Uh, Meryl Streep and the whole reinvention scene mm-hmm. where the young lady becomes stylish. I think that's a fantasy a lot of us have that somehow you're going to turn into a swan. Uh, uh, so I do, and I have it on a DVD. There you go. Uh, exactly. You know, I do love that one. That's an important technology, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's sort of thought as. Uh Part of a long, distant past, but I still have lots of DVDs, and I Thank use you. them, okay? Thank and you. it's all right. No judging. Uh, music. Music. Well, I have to say that I love uh, jazz. Mm-hmm. So uh, my I. dad was a jazz musician. And, what did he play? Uh, he played uh, bass, and he started out with violin. He started the string department at Florida A&M. Mm-hmm. I was just down there recently. And then he got the jazz bug, and uh, he played with... Cannonball Adderley, and we moved. That's how we got to New York. That's how you got to New York. So I have that's to say, that's a great Miles, way to get to New York. With Miles Cannonball Davis Adderley. is still my my favorite. Yes, uh, he's he's wonderful. So whenever we discuss jazz, uh, Miles, John Coltrane, Dave Brubeck, Stan Getz, all of those in the sort of late fi- mid fifties to uh, mid sixties was really really the I think the pinnacle of American jazz uh, virtuosity creativity. And that body of work, uh, I think, is hard to match. I just got a chance to go to Birdland. It's not the original, but I got to go to Birdland. And I was, and my Charlie mom Parker. tells me about uh, being there, and I was having Shirley Temples <laughs> in the front while the guys were playing in the back. We left when I was 10. It was a little much for my mom. Right. That jazz scene was, whoa. <laughs> so, so is that the kind of music you relax to, jazz? It, and also classical, because I love Bach. There's something about Bach. It's, it's a little upbeat and everything like that. And I can listen to more uh, lively classical music because I grew up hearing that as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's uh, what you find on this program. Uh, the Librarian of Congress talking about her favorite book, music, and film, all of which can be found in the Library of Congress can't get that anywhere else but here at the takeout thanks for joining us been great to be in baltimore great to be at the village square cafe carla hayden it's been a delight to chat thank with you, you. we'll I'd see like you again, to do next it week, again. okay bye-bye 
Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.